0: The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One, we believe that high speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. To meet this increasing demand, High Speed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations. As well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words highspeed and the number 1.co.uk.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
2: I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C.
1: I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin.
2: And you are listening to, on June 19th, the very first podcast of the New Statesman's World Review.
1: On this podcast, we're going to try and unpack world events, not just by focusing on the news, but by getting behind the stories to explain what really matters.
2: Since this is our first one, we'll explain our top-of-the-show Gimmick tradition, whatever you like. Every week, we'll be picking out the event from that week that we think will be remembered when historians look back on the world news of today. So my event is: I'm going to cheat because this is the first one, so I feel I can use from past weeks as well. Today is Juneteenth, and which marks for non-Americans or for Americans who just found out about Juneteenth. Juneteenth marks the emancipation of slaves in Texas, who found out a full two years after the. Emancipation Proclamation that they were indeed no longer slaves. While this has been a significant date to Black Americans and particularly to Black Texans for many years, this year, both because of the protests against police brutality and systemic violence against specifically Black Americans, and because President Trump was originally going to hold a rally today in Tulsa, which in 1921 was the site of the Tulsa race riots and the destruction of. Black Wall Street and one of the wealthiest Black communities of America, he eventually moved it. But because this event happened, Juneteenth has, I think it's fair to say, reached a new level in particularly white America's national consciousness. So my event of the past few weeks is this reckoning with race and racism and racist history in the United States. And I, I, I think and hope that we will be able to look back and remember the past few weeks in America as one in which we grappled with that finally.
1: Yeah, and I think we're going to talk a bit more about uh, some of those themes later. I think this week will be remembered in history for the military clash that took place between Chinese and Indian troops high in the Himalayas. It was on Monday this week in the Gulwan Valley, and it was essentially a kind of fist fight between the, the soldiers on the two sides, and the, at least 20 Indian soldiers died, I think mostly apparently by falling. It's not clear how many Chinese soldiers died, but I think it's significant because for the first time in sixty years we've had a fatal military encounter between these two sort of asian superpowers and i th- I think it's a sign of things to come you know india has we have a very good piece on the New station website at the moment about this, but India has tried to kind of walk a delicate path between the u s and China in recent years the sort of two two kind of dominant powers and The US has tried very hard to kind of pull it more onto its side and to sort of, you know, particularly as relations between China and the US have become more fraught. It has tried to win India as a more reliable ally in that competition. And I think we've been seeing already in the last few months, India starting to kind of take a more, antagonistic or certainly skeptical position on China. I think that's partly because of the pandemic, partly because of sort of quite belligerent Chinese diplomacy. And I think also kind of growing alliance in what's called the Indo-Pacific, we published a piece on that as well recently, trying to contain Chinese power. So we've seen India working more closely with Australia, for example, and Japan, and of course, the US. So I think I think it remembered in history as a kind of important step in that process.
2: And with that, that is our prediction of This Week in History, and now we can turn it back to the present with our first ever guest. So our guest today is Benjamin Haddad. He is the director of the Future Europe Initiative at the Atlantic Council and the author of, among other works, the book Paradise Lost, Europe in the World of Trump, which makes the case for greater European unity in a world of new challenges and threats. Ben, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: So to start off, Ben, you have been writing about the protests that have been happening in the United States and how they've inspired protests against police brutality, against Trump, specifically in Europe. Could you tell us a bit about what you've been writing?
3: Yeah, you know, what struck me is uh, during the pandemic, we heard a lot of commentary about the end of the American moment, the rise of the Asian century. For me, it's not a coincidence that the first global event Post-pandemic that sort of breaks with social isolation in many countries and especially in the United States and Europe is an event that started in Minneapolis, in the United States, and that resonated across European societies. And it's been really striking to see, you know, protests that that I think encompassed many different narratives. You had clearly one about police brutality in the United States, but also in European societies, and especially Mm in France, where the protests were led by Assad who who's the sister of a young man who died in police custody four years ago. Some of these protests, I think, were also linked to a broader disappointment with U.S. leadership. They were about Trump. And I think you saw also a little bit of that in, uh, in the United States. And of course, you know, we have different models of identity. We have our own ways of dealing with, with racial issues across European societies that can be different from the United States. It's, it's especially the case in France. And we could go into more details about this, but it's been fascinating to watch how the vocabulary and the references that are used in these American mobilizations are are then imported in Europe. So I I don't know what this means in the long run for U.S. leadership. I've always been sort of a skeptic of the notion of soft power because I don't know how potential Biden presidency could leverage this into concrete influence. But it is interesting to see that there's still this image of America still resonates so deeply deeply. In, in a, such a central way for Europeans, even at the end of the first term of the trump administration
1: i think I think that's a really interesting observation you know this is this is being spoken of in widely as a kind of a moment in america's decline or a sign of america 's failing. And then you kind of, you know, there was even talk about the potential that Trump would send troops onto the streets being a sort of American Tiananmen. But then you actually say, well, actually, the fact that this is not an American Tiananmen, the fact that these protests are allowed to take place, and the fact that they are not just taking place, but they're changing the political discussion in the US, hopefully, you know, in an impactful way that will change how policing is done, for example, will change how people talk and and deal deal with racism. And you look firstly at the way that the, the protests have sort of spread around the world, and the way that America's example here has kind of influenced campaigns and mobilizations in a range of different societies but also then this kind of potential for this being a, a moment that really shows off America at its best. You know, if not only has the, have the protests spread around the world, but if America then genuinely does learn from this moment, does apply the lessons, you know, that is showing people around the world this is not a society that crushes dissent or in which social ills are allowed to go unchallenged, but also a society that can actually do something about that. It's kind of, it's curious, isn't it? It could be a moment of American strength in weakness.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and once again, it's expressed in such a, schizophrenic way by European societies. And we've seen this, you know, in previous protests and in the sixty eight movement that also spread across the globe in, in the protests against the war in Iraq in two thousand three. I mean, you have people protesting about events happening in the United States, and at the same time, they're so. And the, the reason why they're protesting is also because they're so tied to constant U.S. U.S. culture in their life, right? And so there's this because we focus. I live in Washington D.C. I work in a think tank. We focus so much on the politics and the foreign policy dimension of it, but there's a cultural and a values element also to this transatlantic relationship that is that is so central. And it's a form of inspiration. I agree. Now. Once again, I think there's still a lot of uh, frustration in Europe among both leadership and, and populations about what's been happening in the last few years. But I don't know. I think that it, it does bring some hope about the future, both for the United States, because I think the I've been struck, you know, living here also by sort of the widespread support for this movement, including when you look at pulling among many republicans if you look at you know how people relate to the very term black lives matter it's just changed dramatically in the last month and now you even have a third of republicans i think that say that they support the the movement when polling was so negative just a, a few months ago but but i think it's it's also interesting to see how this is going to play out in uh, in europe
1: yeah
2: i also wanted to to note that you who have actually both written about and have kind of come at it from different ways, but have both written about the fact that people will come out and protest America, whereas they won't necessarily come out and protest what's happening in China or Russia, which on the one hand could be construed as, oh, these Europeans are more comfortable bashing America than they are camps that Uyghurs are kept in. But on the other hand, as Jeremy, as you wrote, in a way, it's a it's a good thing that people are still still have the capacity to be disappointed in the United States.
1: Yeah, they have higher expectations of it. I mean, this this was a subject, quite a live subject here in Berlin, where we had a very big protest about Black Lives Matter, and it was there was a sort of strong anti-Trump element to it a couple of weekends ago. And there was a certain amount of media commentary saying, "Oh, you know, where were these people protesting over Ukraine or protesting over, as you say, the Uyghurs or any other number of atrocities?" And you, you have to think, well, perhaps it's just because these young Germans, particularly, have been brought up to think that the U.S. the U.S. is better. They hold it to a higher standard, and that that too is a kind of conversely positive story about the US in a very kind of in quite a dark moment. You guys are both in Washington. I wonder, do you think this will actually, I mean, Ben, you mentioned very interestingly, the shift in attitudes that's been taking place. Do you think we're actually going to see real concrete changes in policy, kind of government policy or policing policy as a result of this?
3: Well, I mean, first, in terms of pure politics, I have the sense, we're still five months away from the election, and so much could happen. You know, a month ago, everyone was writing that the election would be determined by COVID, and now it seems that everyone's even forgotten about COVID. so i would be extremely cautious about the the next few months however i do think this is the lowest point of the of the trump presidency when you just look at polling i mean it's pretty clear that the president was expecting and hoping for radicalization of the movement that could make him rally uh, his base around a, uh, a nixonian message of law and order and authority and on the contrary, the the movement has actually grown more peaceful and more massive, and so I I think and it clearly shows that I think he was playing the radicalization division. On your question on policy, that's the thing that I worry the most about. I mean, I think that it's important to have these these protests, but they shouldn't be limited to symbolic expressions of solidarity or atonement. I think now you know you you need uh, especially at the local level to tackle questions of the role of police unions and police brutality and have an economic response. And I think, you know, it's interesting because you have a democratic president, and we could talk about this in foreign policy as well, Joe Biden, whose main overarching message has been the return to normal and the return to decency. And I've have friends who campaigned for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren whose response to this was always to say, well, it's normal that brought us here in the first place. It's it's normal that brought us Trump. So what we need is much deeper change and we need to talk about the economic and social issues that have led the country to be where it is today, we can't just pretend that this was a nightmare that never happened and, and go back to the paradise of the Obama years. So I think this is where Biden will have to also channel his inner revolutionary and be probably a little bolder in how he tackles these issues.
2: I just wanted to say that I completely agree in terms of the shift in sentiment. I think Trump clearly, because he tweeted out like "law and order," thought that that was going to kind of get him through. This, this movement. And actually, surveys and polls can be misleading. But what some have suggested is that people said that they wanted a candidate who could achieve racial unity more than they wanted a candidate who could maintain law and order through force. So it, it, I mean, I just think it's important to remember, and I think many people forgot this, that the year is not always 1968, right, or 1972, or whatever, the year is 2020. And I also agree that the kind of the proof will be the proof will be in the policy, right? What can you actually do? for these communities and for people who are clamoring for change. I think that your point, Ben, on, on the Biden promise of a return to normalcy and what that means. I'm curious as to what both of you think, being in Europe or and or European, is the thought or the mood in Europe that, yes, we can return to the way that it was before Trump? Because I, as an American, writing on these issues, just I can't imagine that Europeans are going to say, oh, yeah, it was just... That was just Trump and all of those <laughs> indignities and uncertainties that we that we put up with for four years. You know, bygones are bygones. We're back in the, the pre-Trump days. I don't. I just don't see how you can rewind the tape and go back to pre-Trump.
1: You, you've written a book on this. Go on.
3: Yeah, I've I've written a book and I've written articles basically saying that I think Trump is a brutal accelerator of pre-existing trends. A form of uh, I wouldn't say necessarily decoupling, but shifting priorities from the United States to Asia, to the Middle East, but also to its own domestic issues. And Europe just does not have the same strategic centrality for the United States as they used to have during the Cold War. And that's okay. That's also because the Cold War ended up the right way. And it's time for Europeans not to to get opposed to the United States, but just to organize themselves and get their act together. I mean, you know, you talked about the, the big events of this week. We could add what's happening in Libya with Turkey's intervention. I don't think a Biden administration will bail Europeans out. I mean, what's happening in the periphery, especially in the time of social economic crisis in the US, it is a time for Europeans to to get organized. I think, unfortunately, you know, we've heard a lot of discourse in that direction in Europe these last few years. We remember the famous Merkel speech saying that Europeans should, uh, should stand on their own feet. Uh, we hear Macron talking about European sovereignty and strategic autonomy. This is the this same discourse we hear at the European Commission level. Unfortunately, though, I think the reality is very underwhelming. I, I think most Europeans have consciously or not made the decision to wait Trump out. Even limited ambitions in European defense of PESCO and EDF have been even cut in half at European budget negotiations.
1: Just to just clarify the listeners, PESCO is a, a kind of foreign policy coordination mechanism that allows groups of, of states to sort of pursue foreign policy projects together.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And the European Defense Fund was a way for Europeans to pool their resources together to fund common projects on defense and security. And it was already a fairly low budget by military standards. And it was cut in half during the recent budget negotiations at the European Parliament. You see, most European countries have have chosen to go the bilateral route with Washington. And obviously, the Trump administration has encouraged this, rather than, than stick together and have a common position. So I think if we see a Trump 2 administration, then you might have indeed a form of of reckoning and awakening in in Europe saying, "Okay, now we really need to, to get organized. And, you know, you can't just treat this as a four year aberration. But I'm also concerned if Biden is elected, we'll have a much more positive rhetoric on both sides. You clearly will have improved cooperation on global challenges such as fighting climate change that is very important to Europeans. But I'm worried that after the honeymoon of the first couple of months, we'll see some of the same structural challenges that we had already under the Obama administration. If if I can give one example, for example, right now, that's troubling a lot of Europeans, but also transatlanticists in Washington. The Trump administration just announced a sort of sudden withdrawal of U.S. troops from Germany. And there's a lot to be concerned about, especially the way it was done with no coordination, no planification is to debate, and it seems just as a way, once again, to express Trump's personal dislike of Chancellor Merkel. Now, with that being said, what's missing from the conversation is that between 2006 and 2018, the used troop presence in Germany went from 77,000 to 33,000, and Trump is withdrawing 10,000 more. So you had this trend, I mean, maybe it was better coordinated and was not done with the same feeling of hostility, but you have this trend nonetheless that clearly pre-exists Donald Trump. And I think that the, Trump's behavior is preventing us from having a sort of calmer discussion about these issues and what Europeans should do about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's a lot of complacency on this side of the Atlantic about this supposed return to normality after Trump. You know, Everyone recognizes that Trump is an exceptional president. and And because he is so lurid, and so sort of exaggerated, I think it in some ways it kind of allows Europeans to get away with thinking it, it's a one-off and that, and that Biden will kind of take us all back to a world we're more comfortable with. You know, you had the beginnings of, I mean, you talk about this term, Ben, strategic autonomy. You, you know, you had the beginnings of that debate in Europe about Europe doing more on its own and being more independent under Obama. I think partly because it was clear that even a sort of democratic, kind of instinctively quite internationalist sort of American president wasn't paying as much attention to Europe and Europe's neighbourhood as previous presidents. And I think, yeah, it's going to be a bit of a rude awakening if Biden wins in November, takes the presidency, and then doesn't just Kind of return to a sort of Clintonian era of kind of very very tight transatlantic relations, and that might might actually be the moment when Europe starts taking some some of this stuff more seriously. I mean, as you say, at the moment the you know Europe's common foreign policy is pretty underpowered. You know, there's a lot of talk in Brussels of a of a new geopolitical moment for Europe, but the the substance doesn't doesn't live up to that. And Ben, you mentioned you mentioned the case of Libya, which is just a perfect example. This is absolutely in Europe's backyard. Europe experiences very directly the consequences of instability there. I mean, we could talk about migration. There's also kind of security dimension to it. And yet you have a a kind of civil war with yeah, not not just a, a kind of no European common position, but different significant European EU member states actually backing different sides. You have France backing General Haftar and much of the rest of the EU, including Italy, backing the the government in Tripoli. So it, it's all over the place, and I think it's I think it's going to have to change. I mean, do you see? I mean, you know, you're paying a lot of attention to the debate back in France, of course, and you know this is a big ambition for for Macron. I mean, do you see him using the kind of the last couple of years of his current presidential term to to move things forward on that front.
2: Wait, and I I wanna cut in with another question too, which is sort of related and it's it goes back to something you were saying earlier, Ben, which is that European countries have sort of taken the bilateral approach with the United States instead of all coming together and and showing the United States this united Europe. Why is that? Is it because of the France German divide? Is it because of of the, you know, Hungary and Poland? It just seems like now would be the time, right, to to work as one and there that hasn't been the case.
3: You know, I think the cost, the short term cost benefit reward of working directly within the United States outweigh the long, tedious negotiations within the European Union, even though I think that in the long run, this would clearly pay off more for European members if they were able to defend together their security and, and interests, where it, they do it well on economic issues and trade negotiations we've seen in the Brexit talks. Or, you know, I think the, the European Union is, is really setting the standards and norms on digital issues and privacy. We've seen GDPR, the debate about tech giants that's also being important in the United States. So on all these sort of more normative and soft issues, Europeans are actually working well together and the commission is taking the lead. On political and military issues, I mean, it's always more complicated. This is much more tied to your own nation's sovereignty and interest. And so I think, you know, you've seen different countries that basically have felt that, you know, from Poland but to to also France, that it was in their interest to also deal directly with Donald Trump. And and I think you'll still have that, that sort of, of sentiment afterwards. The real issue, though, is I'm, I'm convinced that the best way to save in the long run the transatlantic relationship is precisely for Europeans to invest in their own strategic autonomy and sovereignty. First, to defend their own interests and be stable and not be burdened by Instability in their neighborhood, in countries like Libya, but also to really show the United States that they can they can carry weight in the debate, that they're valuable partners. You know, I was uh, reading this week after the troops in Germany debate the speech that Bob Gates, who uh, was uh, Obama's uh, first Secretary of Defense, uh, gave in 2011 when he left the Pentagon about burden sharing. You know, and you have a a vocabulary that's very tough, that's very strong, saying you know the United States won't be interested in, in working with allies who don't want to spend for their own defense. We've had these debates about places like uh, northeast Syria in, in the last years where Europeans have been very upset at the sudden withdrawal from the United States, the abandonment of, of the Kurds, something that, as Jeremy said, like Libya had direct consequences for Europe in terms of migration and security. But then at the same time, you know, Trump had been warning Europeans for three years that he wanted to withdraw once ISIS was destroyed. He had campaigned on this. He clearly showed no interest in the long-term political arrangements of of Syria. And Europeans found no way to, you know, it it was 1,500 troops. It was not 50,000 boots on the ground, found no way to organize themselves progressively and come to the United States and say, okay, you want to withdraw? We're going to work with you progressively. We can send 200 French and 150 Italians and 100 Germans, and we're progressively going to uh, to replace your presence there. That would have been good for the transatlantic relationship, but that would mostly have been good for European interests themselves. And that's a complete shift in the way we have to think about these issues, and we're not there yet.
2: I think we will leave the discussion part of this podcast there. Moving forward, we will be stealing slash copying the pre-existing New Statesman podcast with a section called You Ask Us, in which you can send in your questions for us. And we will, as the title suggests, answer them. But as this is our maiden voyage, we will now skip to our final segment in which Jeremy, the guest and I predict what will be an important event to watch next week. Ben, we have put you on the spot. So if you don't have an event for next week, that's quite all right. But
3: we'll let you start. So next week, I'll be watching the visit of Polish President Duda in Washington, D.C. I think the first foreign visit in in months in in the capital, it's important because Duda will be facing a fraught presidential election on Sunday. So this visit will clearly be seen as a form of endorsement from President Trump with the risk of making the U.S.-Poland relationship a partisan issue in the United States. That's something to really watch closely for people who are interested in European politics.
2: Jeremy?
1: I am going to say, I mean, it's not exactly clear when this will come out, but I am going to be looking out for Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. There's a lot of speculation about that at the moment. He said he's going to pick a woman. It now seems like a reasonable chance he might pick a woman of colour, particularly after the events of the last weeks. And I think think that's going to be an interesting moment, whether in the next week or, or, or the following one. To show us a bit, sort of, the approach that Biden's going to take in the in the in the build up to the election. I mean, you you know this uh, better than me, Emily. It's is he going to play it safe with a kind of fairly centrist candidate who can sort of appeal in those crucial swing states, Wisconsin, Arizona, the, the places where Trump needs to be defeated, or is he going to go with a sort of a figure more from the left and sort of try and energize the Democratic base to kind of really push up turnout? So that's going to be interesting to watch.
2: Both good answers. I will be watching elections next week on June 20th. We have the Sri Lanka parliamentary election on June 21st. We have the Serbian parliamentary elections. And on June 23rd, I'm sorry, this is so U.S. centric, but on June 23rd, New York has its primary and we will see if the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee loses his seat to the man they're calling the next AOC, Jamal Bowman, sort of lame to plug my own piece on this podcast, but I will do it anyway. Sure it. We, Yeah. <laughs> Elliot Engel losing his seat wouldn't actually, in my opinion, change U.S. foreign policy all that much. But it would suggest that this, you know, that the 2018 with these younger candidates, more progressive candidates coming into office, that that was not a one off and that this is still that tug between the middle and the left and the Democratic Party, that tug of wars hasn't been won just yet by one side
1: so that's something to look out for thank you very much indeed for those answers and thank you especially ben for joining us on our first episode of world review podcast if you have enjoyed this podcast and think you have friends or colleagues who would be interested in it then please tell them about it we'll be back next friday with another excellent guest who's going to help us pick apart what's happening particularly in asia at the moment so thank you very much thank you
0: The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One we believe that high-speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. To meet this increasing demand, High Speed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations – as well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words highspeed and the number 1.co.uk. The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One we believe that high-speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. To meet this increasing demand, High Speed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations – as well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words highspeed and the number one.co.uk. .co.uk.
3: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.